e te rangatira manu te nei mātau e muri muri aroha nei ki a koe kia marire te moe kai ngā kanohi ora o te motu tahuti mai ki te hui welcome to the hui maori current affairs for all new zealanders e taroake nei he suffered horrific injuries after being electrocuted at work my independence is gone so I depend on somebody else to care for me and it becomes very hard to do things for myself as I once did. Now the whānau of scaffolder Jada Nelson are demanding answers. My son's life is never going to be the same ever. Could his accident have been prevented? Do you think Super City Scaffolding did everything they could to protect you as a worker that day? No. There could have been more done. If there are power lines in proximity to the job, that should have been well identified at the time that the scaffold went up. It regularly makes news headlines. Māori men, often young, heading off to work one day, only to be critically or seriously injured during the course of their job. Some never make it home. Recently, it was the story of a West Auckland scaffolder who remarkably survived a massive electric shock. Tonight, Jardin Nelson speaks from hospital about his horror accident in the hope of improving health and safety conditions for Māori workers, particularly those working in the construction industry. He was given a one in five chance of survival. I call it a blessing to be here still. A horrific workplace accident left father of three, Jardin Nelson, severely burnt, losing both his arms. I'm going to be in a wheelchair for a couple of years. He'll never get to hug his kids again. No, he won't. Walk his daughter down the aisle, he'd never be able to hold her hand. Now the whānau of the 28-year-old scaffolder wants to know how a day at work left him fighting for his life. My son needs closure. We need answers. I'm just wanting someone to take the responsibility for what's happened. Jardin Nelson began working in construction 10 years ago. Yeah, working with mates and cousins, it gives you an extra sense of like belonging and stuff to work. So working beside them, it made me happy. You know, it was a job, but it was a job that he did love, you know. Jardin's mother, Tony Paikia, says even though she knew her son was careful when he was working on sites, she couldn't help but worry. Just every day, you know, I love you, love you, be safe. And, you know, he'd always text back going, oh, so I'm all right, you know. You took safety really seriously. Yeah, I did. It's people's lives that could be taken in an instant. Tuesday, April 19, 2022. And there was a real horrific noise. And there was a huge, and I mean huge, big, big ball of fire. Neighbour Carol Oliver is still haunted by what she saw that morning. 28-year-old construction worker Jardin Nelson had been working at the site in West Auckland for Super City Scaffolding. Dismantling scaffolding 
had you done that hundreds of times before? Yeah, I've done it yeah, hundreds of times. But this time, the steel pole Jardin was holding came in contact with these low-hanging, high-voltage power lines as he was taking the scaffolding down. I knew exactly what had happened because the power lines are so close. A massive electric shock literally blew Jardin's arms off, damaging his internal organs as high voltage seared through his body. The blast tossed Jardin off the structure he was working on, throwing him unconscious to the ground. You couldn't get over the fence, but you were giving instructions for CPR? Yes, so I just kept talking, and there was a lot of crying, a lot of screaming. It was just horrific. It shouldn't have happened. Without Carol's help that day, my son probably wouldn't be here today. When I stand here, those power lines look a hell of a lot closer than you'd picture it in a picture. WorkSafe is investigating how the accident happened. We'll explain more about the circumstances later. But it's left Tony contemplating what the long-term impacts will be on her son. It's affected his children, his partner. We're all broken. And our life's just been switched upside down because of this incident. This is Jardin today, a patient at Auckland's Middlemore Hospital ever since he arrived in an ambulance five months ago. And what has it been like being here for five months? Yeah, I've had my ups and downs since being here. I can tell you it's been very hard. It might be an uphill battle, but it's remarkable Jardin is still alive after extensive internal injuries to his organs and severe burns to around a third of his body. He's now also a double amputee. My independence is gone, so I depend on somebody else to care for me, and it becomes very hard to... <sighs> to do things for myself, as I once did. Do you feel like a burden? Yeah, yeah. It's not only Jardin who's grappling with his life-changing injuries, explaining it to his three children will take years. My two sons are still young, but my oldest, my daughter, she kind of has a fair idea that dad is sick. Tried to tell her that dad's got no hands anymore because she's so used to me being able to play with her, be able to throw a ball with her. It's a long road, all right and it will be a long road until he's old and grey, probably. He's still going to be going through the trauma that he's been through. What happened to Jada Nelson and his whanau is horrific, but not unexpected, because if you're Māori, you're more likely to have an accident or be seriously injured while you're doing your job. And it's in the construction industry where many of these accidents occur. Māori workplace deaths are higher than non-Māori as well. That's what it's about. Sid Kepa is First Union's Māori Vice President and says he was shocked when he heard about Jardin's accident. It's terrible. It's, you know, been front-page news. If they had a health and safety measure in there, that wouldn't have happened. Sid says dedicated health and safety representatives who protected workers in hazardous jobs 
like in construction, were replaced when the Employment Contracts Act was introduced in 1991. He says these days, self-employed kaimahi have fewer protections from dangerous working conditions. All they know about is I sign this and I get a job. That's all they know. They don't know anything else. Going back to my day, they gave us everything. Steel toe cap, boots, high-vis jackets, all that stuff. Because that was part of the agreement we had. But now, you've got to look, do your own tax, do your own safety, do everything else. And you're only an individual. Do you think the health and safety of workers, particularly in the construction industry, have become a casualty of cost-cutting? Yeah, of course. And to me, the government's got to do something about health and safety. Well, so what, what they've done with this? After the break, Jardin Nelson's contract comes under scrutiny when he applies for compensation for his injuries. You had to provide your own... Tools, tools. safety, PPE. This is a message to all people. <laughs> no matter the industry, think carefully as to whether you're a contractor or a worker. And could his accident have been prevented? Do you think Super City Scaffolding did everything they could to protect you as a worker that day? No. There could have been more done. If there are power lines in proximity of the job, that should have been well identified at the time that the scaffold went up. Auraki mai anō. Because they're more likely to work in high-risk occupations, Māori are also more likely to be seriously injured at work. But when it comes to ACC, they face the biggest obstacles to accessing support. Double amputee Jardin Nelson has no recollection of the horrific workplace accident he was involved in earlier this year. The 28-year-old and his whānau are now trying to piece together what happened when he came into contact with high-voltage power lines while on the job. As officials investigate the accident, what are the safety guidelines and what are the financial implications for Jardin and his whānau as he contemplates no longer working in the job he loved? Scaffolder Jardin Nelson is learning to walk again. He's had 40 operations since he was rushed to Middlemore Hospital in April after being electrocuted at work. Had you had any close calls, any accidents before? Me, no. I've had no close calls. I worked on sites where there has been close calls and dangerous accidents, but I never thought it would happen to me. His horrific accident raises fresh concerns about the safety of kaimahi working in Aotearoa's construction industry. Jeff Strample is with SiteSafe, an organisation that promotes the reduction of injury and harm on building sites through education. Overhead power lines are really hard to miss. They're a well-known risk. Missing that is, is pretty impossible. Jeff says the industry standard is that all risks should be clearly communicated to workers. In Jardin's case, the low-hanging power lines being so close to tall metal poles. For a dismantle, if there are power lines in proximity of the job, that should have been well identified at, at the time that the scaffold went up. Jardin can't remember anything about his accident, but a colleague alleges that no safety briefing took place that day. 
they also say that Jardin and his team didn't put up the scaffolding. The job they were doing taking it down was the first time they'd ever been at the site. Quite often it won't be the same crew that comes back to do it as well, but even if it is the same crew, we start the day, what are we doing? What are the major risks? How are we controlling them? There is also a minimum safety distance if scaffolding structures are in close proximity to power sources. So if you're working within four metres of any power lines, there's a requirement to get in contact with the line owner and then arrange for uh, consent to work there and the line owners will generally then say, well, this is what needs to happen. When you're working with power lines yeah. so low like that, would you sleeve them off or would you put a marking on them or flag, red flag them? Yeah, they would be yeah, sleeping around the power lines. As if there was no sleevings, either it would, the power, power lines would be turned off. Normally that would be the case, but the lines that electrocuted Jardin were of such a high voltage, they serviced the entire Waitakere West Auckland region. That makes switching off the lines or protecting them by sleeving them impossible. Super City Scaffolding's sole director, Claire Attard, declined our requests for an interview, saying it wasn't appropriate to comment while the accident was still under investigation. Before Super City Scaffolding, Attard was a CEO for a chain of fitness centres. She hasn't responded to our queries regarding her scaffolding company's safety protocols. But on their website, Supercities say they take a hands-on approach to health and safety, and returning their staff safely to their families each night is their number one priority. What contact have you had from Supercity Scaffolding? Only texts with them sending me his payslips. No um, formal letter saying sorry. Nothing. So the director, Claire Attard, has never visited or contacted you? No, I haven't heard from Claire. Nothing from Super City Scaffolding. That's right, nothing from Super City Scaffolding after his near fatal accident. WorkSafe say it will take about a year to investigate and determine if anyone will be held responsible for what happened to Jardin. In the meantime, his whānau wait desperate for answers. As a parent, yes, I want answers. Someone needs to be held responsible. My son's life is never going to be the same, ever. Can you accept that this was an accident? Yes, it's an accident, but it's an accident that could have been stopped. Jardin also lost his livelihood when he lost his limbs. And how difficult have things been financially for you guys? Financially, it's been, it's been hard, it's been a struggle. Especially me being in here and not being able to provide. And then looking at his pay. Jardin was on $27 an hour for doing potentially dangerous work, just a bit more than the minimum wage. He even had to supply his own personal protection equipment on that money. He was the main income earner in his whānau, but as a double amputee, he won't be able to work again for years. Like many in his situation, Jardin had no idea what his entitlements were for compensation. A lot of people do not know about how to access ACC, particularly young Māori. 
I have found in the work that I do, whether you're a forestry worker or a construction worker, there's not an awareness of how ACC works. Hazel Armstrong specialises in ACC law and is Jardin's legal counsel. Well, I think there's a structural bias against Māori. When they get injured, they're less likely to claim and they get less entitlement. So at each step of the way, there's disadvantage. Some of my clients are rural, uncertain internet, only have a phone, no computer, no printer. They may not have an accessible GP. All of those are structural disadvantages. Yeah, I wouldn't have got anything if it wasn't for the lawyer that I have. Couldn't thank you enough for getting what I deserved. While Jardin feels let down by his employer, he has been overwhelmed by the kindness of strangers. With more than $75,000 donated by the public to his Give a Little Fund. I can't be grateful enough, especially for the ones that are still here and continue to follow me on my journey. You know, it means the world to me. But there's more big bills to come. In time, he'll have to choose prosthetic limbs and the hunt is on for a wheelchair-friendly new home. But Middlemore Hospital will be where he'll stay for a while longer. Oh. I have a lot of pain still. Even though all my operations and stuff are done, all the main wounds are all closed, I still have pain. And I'll probably live with that pain for a couple of years. His whānau have been by his side through his brave battle. Their aroha instrumental in his miraculous recovery. The main thing here is I'm still here, still living life. Be here for my kids and family. Especially my partner that's been here and stood by my side through everything. WorkSafe haven't responded to our requests on where they're at with his investigation. The Minister for Workplace Relations and Safety, Michael Wood, says work is progressing on regulations which aim to provide better health and safety for workers, including clearer and stronger rules for workers at heights and ensuring that offences for breaching the rules are proportionate to the risk of harm. If you'd like to donate to Jada Nelson's Give a Little page, the details will be on our Facebook page. Kahuya no tātou ākwane. Cabinet has agreed to a plan setting out the priorities for the Māori media sector over the next three years. It includes funding, workforce development, te reo Māori and Māori perspective programming. Hei matapaki i tēnei take, ko honomaya Stacey Morrison, i kāwhero o te umanga pāpāho Māori, rawa ko te hiamana o te uepu arotake ko Jason Aki. Tēnā kōrua. Tēnā kōrua. Uh, so, Jace, you led the panel. Do you think the collective um, thoughts for Karo are represented here? I think what we managed to do was to uh, cobble together um, the feedback that we received uh, from the sector the best way that we possibly could have. Um, you know as well as a number of us that the sector has been under siege for many years. And sitting behind that was a, a need to resource and fund it to a level 
um, that it required in order to get to that next space. So, um, uh, in essence, I think we've managed to navigate through that space quite well. Um, there is still more work to be done, though. Um, let's come to you, Stace, because at the heart of all of this is te reo Māori. Mm -hmm. When you look in, when you, you read that report, do you think that we are kaiti manaki tonu mai tātou i te reo? Um, so there is some really good korero about Te Reo Māori and how we make sure that this is part of our, our content consumption. But then there's still this slight thing that I think we'd like to have a wānanga further on around how do we measure the impact of Te Reo uh, programming on acquisition and should it sit so heavily in terms of acquisition. Kia ounei, kāre anō tātou kia tino whai i te, uh, te tahi mahai ine. So I don't know about measurement yet. We talk about kōpā in here still, going from kore to passive to active. But within that, within our access to te reo Māori programming, let's look at what is most effective. And is it something like Squid Games in Te Reo Māori, but coming from a Māori perspective? Interesting, uh, that kōrero, Jace. I w wondered if you had a perspective on that. Um, Stacey's talking about the acquisition and the reliance on producers to come up with real reports and the rest of it. Perhaps it should be, you know, Ministry of Cultural Heritage or Te Tauruwhiri or Te Pūne Kōkiri that's actually looking at the measurement of Te Reo to let everyone just get on, get on with making programmes. I can't agree with that, um, and the reason why I can't agree with it is I think um, some of those measurement tools ought to be populated by iwi thinking. Um, otherwise, it gets mixed up in an overly bureaucratic system that resides in Wellington. And you know, and we all know that while we've got organisations down there like Matawai, uh, also like Te Tauraferi Te Reo Māori, um, both organisations uh, essentially crown organisations because that's where they're funded from. We need to populate that thinking, um, and I know that's quite a controversial thing to say, uh, and a number of the board members will disagree vehemently um, with me about that. Um, but I think the absence uh, of an iwi voice is a recipe for disaster if it's not included um, in that space. Um, yeah, the, the, the report talks about the fragmentation of uh, Māori language organisations and, and um, here we're talking about an iwi voice. How might that look? You know, we, how could we bring that in? Yeah, I don't actually think we're disagreeing. I think that there's just, we've just got to get the right model of how it works. Who has to put the mahi in and where does the yeah. money come from? To make sure that programmes get made by the people who are best at making programmes and the people who uh, can tell us what impact it's having and what we need to do in terms of the deal, which of course is iwi as well, that they're always involved and can offer the things that they know best. Mm. Jace, I want to talk to you a bit, uh, because in Hefakata Māori, who's always received direct funding in terms of the operations, it looks like they're going to receive direct funding in terms of the content as well, the real uh, irirangi not so much. Is that a, are you disappointed with that? Let me talk about a couple of things there. So absolutely they're going to be, Whakata Māori will be funded um, to provide some content. We were adamant um, as a board or as a panel that in terms of um, the entire content that makes up their programming, uh, that at least 70 to 80% of it needed to be um, procured from um, members of Te Ahu for example, or by um, external producers from outside. 
So that was the expectation um, that underpins quite an, a bit of that advice. And um, it's our sort of wish or it's our view that that ought to be listened to uh, very um, so, Jason's talking very carefully. So, so just coming back to states here, so about eighty percent. Um, well, you know the, what the panel's saying is that about eighty percent of the content should be made from, you know, Maori outside of Fakata Maori. In terms of Ngāri o Irirangi, um, oh. who have always struggled for, you know, funding, there is no suggestion they're going to get any direct funding for content. Are, are you so disappointed with A couple with of things on, on the radio um, front. Um, what we managed to do is um, there are two things that they raised with us. One of, Actually, there were more, but two main things. One of them was that they required um, funding to be given to them over a number of years rather than the annual appropriation which they were forced to go back uh, to the to, to Mangai Pao for. Um, so what we've said is that longitudinal contracts uh, need to be invested inside the system so that they've got more surety around staffing, around all of those types of and internal costs, operational costs. So that was significant. The other one is um, the removal of the uh, transmission costs to uh, radio stations. Uh, Mihi, some of those radio stations pay up to 20 to 25% of their annual budget um, toward uh, transmission costs. Those costs will no longer fall on iwi stations. Um, they will, it'll be the government's responsibility uh, to find funding for them via Cordia um, and others. So that represents roughly to some of them, a 20% increase in annual baseline funding. Tenopai. Uh, and also in there, it talks about how, um, you know, all of the industries are reforming at once. You've got the public inter uh, media entity also doing yeah. the same. So this is an opportunity for us to have a world-class um, alignment strategy, if you like, for media. What would that look like? Is it bringing Māori, Whakata Māori into the tent and those kinds of things? I think so, and that's what we're asking for. And so the timing of this report is interesting because it wasn't when it was originally expected, but in the end it's quite good uh, because being first in to this public media corridor mm. means that we set the po uh, with Māori media and then welcome everyone in. So it's about what are the best resources to share, where do we keep mana motuhake and where are we just really efficient in our thinking? What, is, what are your thoughts Absolutely. I, I agree, I agree, absolutely. There are other opportunities that uh, rest inside the sector as a whole um, that we do need to be visible on and take advantage of. Um, our expectation as a panel is that the uh, public media organisation, uh, when they sit down to decide what that might look like, um, that it is underpinned by a very strong uh, treaty framework. And so that our voice uh, isn't just an add-on voice to it, but it's also um, in, intimately involved in the, not just the strategic direction, but how um, it'll roll that out. And I think there are opportunities there. Yeah, so uh, that, that means leadership, of Māori leadership in the, in the public media space. So not yeah. just sort of, we, we are public media and so that's good for everybody. We know that doesn't work. We need Māori and leadership in those roles as well yeah. as Māori who are powerful and well-resourced in Māori media. Tēnā kōrā, hey, let, let me be a bit, a bit controversial here. So why don't we think about a co-governance <laughs> model where we have a Māori chairperson as well hmm. um, as non-Māori chairperson of that public media entity. Tēnā kōrua, um, e mihiana kia kōrua.
Te puna whakatongarewa te hui i tautoko.